Welcome to the Well Woman Show, where we interview women executives, leaders, and entrepreneurs. And you're listening to the Well Woman Show, where motivated women achieve fulfillment and well-being. You're listening to the Well Woman Show. Take time for myself by coming to things like Well Woman Drinks. To be accepting of myself no matter what. Step away from judgment as much as possible. You're listening to the Well Woman Show. Just, you're going to be in for a good ride. I don't regret anything. Everything I've ever done, I've learned from it, one way or another, good or bad. Being a little bit selfish for yourself, you know, put your own oxygen mask on first and then give what's left. I'm a woman. I would prefer to, to tell my own story. My story, though it's very personal, is universal. You're listening to the Well Woman Show. And now your host, Giovanna Rossi. Hi, Giovanna Rossi here, and welcome to another episode of The Well Woman Show, where I interview women leaders, executives, and entrepreneurs about their lives and their road to becoming and being who they are today. Do you ever find yourself overwhelmed with your responsibilities, and it seems like you'll never get it all done? Well, you're not alone. We all need to remember to use our superpowers, the ones we already have but don't use all the time, and take advice and wisdom from one another. Towards the end of the show, in a segment called Superpowers for Success, I ask my guest about her superpowers, and the answers will give you the strength, perspective, and power to keep on being the well woman you are. I'm so happy you're here, so thanks for tuning in. Today's topic is conquering fear, and hopefully by the end of the show, you'll be inspired to change your relationship with your fears, learn to use them as motivation rather than roadblocks and take a chance with a project or goal that you've dreamed about but been too afraid to pursue. My guest today is Fernanda Santos, chief of the Phoenix Bureau of the New York Times and author of The Fire Line, the story of Granite Mountain hotshots and one of the deadliest days in American firefighting. Prior to working for the Times, Fernanda reported for the Republican in Springfield, Massachusetts, the Eagle Tribune in Lawrence, Massachusetts, the Daily News of New York, and People Magazine. She got her start in journalism in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, in her home country, and has reported in three languages, in Latin America and the United States. Today I talked to Fernanda about using fear as a source of motivation, pursuing non-traditional projects, and the importance of support from family and community as you embark upon new endeavors. The free giveaway today is a chapter of Fernanda's new book, The Fireline. I love this giveaway because it draws you immediately into the story of the Granite Mountain hotshots and provides a unique perspective on the story. Now to my interview with Fernanda Santos. Hi, Fernanda. Welcome to the program. Hi, Giovanna. It's great to be here. So I gave a little bit of your background in the introduction, but tell me, um, let's talk a little bit about your book, which is about the Granite Mountain Hotshots, which is an elite crew of husbands, fathers, and sons trained to fight um, wildfires. And my question, uh, my first question for you is, with the book being largely about men, how does their story and the story you tell in the book impact women's lives? Well, the book is largely about men, but for for those men to do the job that they did, they needed uh, very strong women behind them. So the book has a lot of these sort of behind the scenes uh, images of um, 
the moments they spent at home with their as as husbands, as fathers, the struggles they had. I mean, the this is a kind of job that requires being away from home for a long time. Fire season usually starts around mid-April, goes through mid-October here in the West. So they may be out on a fire for two weeks straight, and then they have day two days off. But if they are called to another fire in another state, they might not go back home, instead stay somewhere along the way and then get in their vehicles and, and go to this next fire. Um, so there is this um, gone and gone again routine mm-hmm. that the women have to get used to. And so they develop their own ways of being independent and being men of the house and, and women of the house. And, mm. uh, and to me, that's sort of like maybe something that only a woman writing this story would think about because the men are such strong characters that you might forget that there's a whole sort of like backup team, so to speak, that's, that's with them. And that's usually, you know, the women and, um, and the kids. Yeah. And so did you spend a lot of time with the women and can you tell us about that? Yeah, I did. I, um, I made an effort um, I and succeeded. Uh, I made a point, I should say, in interviewing all of the families because I wanted to meet all of the men. And I thought that obviously the only way I could meet them was through the people who knew them very well since they were no longer around. Um, and um, those who were married and those who also had fiancés um, had, uh, you know, the wives and the fiancés were sort of my first uh, point of contact. I also interviewed um, several sets of parents and became very connected to the mothers, um, perhaps because I'm a mother myself. So, you know, I kind of try to put myself in the shoes of being a, a woman who lost her husband but also put myself in the shoes of a woman who lost her child. Um, and, um, and we, um, I bonded very strongly with, with several of them. And I think the reason is that, um, we both, there was this sense of like, you kind of understand what I'm talking about because, you know, at least you have experienced what it's like to be a mom or what it's like to be a wife. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are incredibly strong people. There's one of them, Desiree Steed, whose uh, husband was the captain of the crew, Jesse Steed. And Desiree is one of those people who is very matter of fact. You, you sit down with her, you ask the questions, she answers. There's not a lot of tears shed, a lot of moments of, you know, uh, breaking down or anything like that. And then you have someone like um, Stephanie Turbyfill, who was incredibly sweet, incredibly private. And she and I sat down for hours in this little house that I rented. And she revealed the most intimate moments of her last night with her husband, which to me were, were so tender because... I could see myself there. And I think anyone who has a husband or a boyfriend, somebody they really love and care for, um, uh, they can, they can imagine those moments. Mm. Wow. And so you really got to know the story of, of the firefighters through really through their wives. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got to meet them, uh, as firefighters, you know, uh, but but I got to really know them as as regular guys, you know, as mm-hmm. as dads and husbands. Yeah. 
And what do you think, you, you touched a little bit on you being a woman writing this story and what that brought to the book, but can you elaborate on that? Yeah, you know, um, it wasn't just being a woman, right? In my case, here's a woman whose name is Fernanda Santos, so clearly not, you know, Jane Smith. So <laughs> right. I'm an immigrant. I'm from Brazil. Um, I work for the New York Times, uh, which in some circles is regarded as, you know, a liberal rag. Um, so I had a lot of strikes against me when I started this. And, um, you know, I remember... A, Years ago, when I left Brazil to come to this country, um, I have a, a great father um, who grew up in a very sort of traditional Latin society, um, but who understood that there was that for his daughters, he didn't want that traditional role. Um, and he would always tell my sister and I, never depend on a man for anything. Always stand up for yourself. Be strong. You can do exactly what any man can do and you can do it better if you want because women tend to be smarter and those are the words of my dad so <laughs> you know who I think is a pretty smart guy and so the way I went about it was you know I dealt with a lot of the resistance that I got from the men and by the men are mostly they were mostly firefighters mm-hmm. um by just kind of showing up and being there you know they would kind of kind of um, dismiss me. Some would just flat out refuse talking to me. Others would question why would I even want to write a book about guys, about firefighters, if I'm not a man or a firefighter. Hmm. And I would just say, well, you know, just give me a chance and then let's talk and then we'll see how that goes. And, you know, they would say no once, twice. And then little by little, I think I just kind of, um, uh, you know, warn them with kindness and, and, and sort of uh, persistence. Somebody, one of the fathers told me it was a gentle persuasion. Mm. That's sad. <laughs> now, do you think this, obviously you put to use a lot of your skills as a reporter, you, you reported on a lot of these, um, fires in, before actually writing the book, right? So you used a lot of your skills as a reporter. Was that, um, did you have to change the way you would normally operate as a reporter in order to do the book? No. Um, but I did make a very conscious decision early on, which was that I was not going to knock on anybody's doors. I imagine that, you know, I mean, this was a huge news story. There were people, um, covering it from all over the world and the, you know, the media from, all over the United States, other countries descended upon this small city of Prescott, Arizona, um, and they were knocking on doors. They were corralling the families and the firefighters as they went from one place to another. And uh, and uh, I didn't want the families to think of me as just another reporter. Mm. And the way I deliberately chose to do that was by not knocking on their doors. So that's the one thing I did differently than what you normally do as, as you know, as a daily news reporter. But, um, but the skills that I used were the same that I used for my job, except that I had more time and more space so I could explore every question much more deeply than than I can do if I'm just writing a story for tomorrow's newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that was a huge difference. So if somebody told me something that intrigued me, I could ask a thousand questions about it. I could go and search that on 
online and historical documents and books and, and even go back to that person and talk more about that aspect of things because now I know more about it and I can ask better questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that, in that case, it was different, but the baseline was the same. And did you actually take time off of being a reporter in order to do this? I would like to think that I was a reporter the whole time. Mm. Um, it's I still struggle to say like oh, I'm an author. You know, mm. it's 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 kind of weird because um, this book was so much about reporting for me. I mean, it was as I said, you know, just a longer much longer experience with my reporting. Um, but I did take eight, I took eight months of leave from the times to write the book. I did the vast majority of my reporting, um, as I was also doing my job, um, for the times and also doing my job as a wife and as a mother and, you know, as, um, a, a member of the board of the girls choir that my daughter sings at. So, mm. you know, um, I just had to do what, what people like you and other, you know, working parents do. We just had to juggle a bunch of things at the same time. And, at what point did you know, Fernanda, that you needed to write a book about this? Because for a long time you were reporting on right. on these things, but at what point were you like, "Oh wow, I have this. This is a book, and I need to do this." Well, I um, realized that I, as I was covering this story and writing about it, that I had more questions than I had answers. Even though I was writing, you know, authoritative pieces that appeared on the front page of the New York Times about, um, you know, the screw, the job they did, the fire and what happened to them um, while working that fire, um, I didn't quite understand how wildfires burned and how fire and weather, the real ways with which fire and weather almost conspire, you know, to become this monster that sometimes is impossible uh, to contain. Um, You know, you kind of have to let it run its course a little bit and, and wait for that little gap um, that opportunity, that cooler night, that drizzle that fell so that you can go back and start uh, attacking that fire again. Um, I had uh, questions about the guys, a lot of questions. You know, who are these people? Who on earth does this dangerous job? You know, who chooses to have a career that involves taking a risk every single day? And the risks are not just from the fire, you know. Um, and those are the things that I wondered about, you know, how is it like to work on a terrain that's so treacherous, like, Mm. you know, some of the mountains that we have in New Mexico and Arizona full of rocks and trees that are, that maybe, you know, are, are, have beetles, so they're weakened, or maybe are half burned, so their branches are falling out. I mean, people have, firefighters have died from from branches that fell on their head, mm. you know, or rocks that rolled down the mountain and hit them. Um, and uh, I just had all these questions and I thought, you know, and, and, and I didn't have as much interest from the times and keep going with the story. They were like, okay, move on. And I remember obsessing over it and coming home, you know, and reading stuff about it and then talking to my husband almost every night about it until finally at one point he said, you know what, you should just write this book because mm-hmm. otherwise... We're going to be sitting here 10 years from now, and you're still going to be talking about it. So I, I'd like to think is that this book saved my marriage because, um, <laughs> you know, had I not written it, I 
I, I don't know what my husband would have done because uh, I could tell at that point that I was really annoying him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, Fernanda, I'm really interested in that point where women have an idea or are passionate about something and then they take bold action to move it into the next thing, which is this creative, you know, big commitment to create something big. And so a a lot of our listeners are, you know, in that situation and it's like, how do you, you know, go from having this idea to like making it happen? So you you know, it was pretty bold to be like, I can take eight months off of work. I'm I'm going to make that happen somehow. We're going to, you know, work it out with the schedule and everything. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah. Um, first and foremost, I think that it's almost like having a child. You know, if you think too much about it, you're never going to have one. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's like if you if you're if you have an idea and you believe, uh, first of all, I think that, that we know intuitively if that idea is different, is more special, is stronger than the ideas we had before. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, I could feel, uh, you know, inside of me a, a, a fire that I hadn't um, felt with any other story that I'd written before and, and spent some time thinking about, mm-hmm. you know, whether or not it was something beyond uh, a few uh, newspaper stories or a magazine story. Um, so that's number one. Uh, and, you know, I think women in general, um, uh, and I, myself included, we tend to sometimes underestimate ourselves. You know, we kind of think that, oh my gosh, but I have to take care of my kids. And, you know, even though my husband's great, he can't do pay the bills to save his life because he gets all confused or because, you know, he would forget <laughs> to pick up the kids in school. I mean, we start coming up with all these excuses. Yeah. Yeah. And I just said, you know what? Um, uh, if I'm going to do this, I have to have my whole family has to buy into it. So that was the main thing was my husband, you know, clearly annoyed by um, all my questions, but, but also knowing that this was different and and meaningful to me, he, um, he bought onto the project and he took on roles that are not your traditional, you know, um, roles of men and women. All of these things have gone out the window anyway, but you know, he took care of my daughter on weekends when I was working. Um, he many times took her to school. I made a point in taking her to school every morning, at Mm -hmm. least that, but he was in charge of picking her up every day. He pretty much, um, kept the calendar for school activities that we had to make sure that I wouldn't forget or he would sit with me on Sundays um, and say, okay, let's go over the calendar, see what's going on this week. And, um, you know, and and I also thought that, um, uh, you know, there there is a level of example that I could give my daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I said, I mean, she understands she's just turned seven. So she was four when I started this. She understands what a book is. She reads. She loves to read. She knows what my work is about. She sees my, I always show my name in the paper, you know, on the paper or on the screen if I'm reading the paper online. And and I tell her, you know, this is what mommy does. That's why I'm on the computer a lot. I want her to understand what I do. And, um, you know, and we got into this whole thing about this whole conversation that came out of this experience about how a lot of people tell you, 
as a girl, as a woman, you know, uh, you have these boxes, right? Like you're, you are great to write about motherhood issues, or you're great to write in my case about immigration, because you're an immigrant, or you're great to write about, you know, social issues, child welfare, and things like that. But can you actually write a story about firemen, you know, wildfire, something so primal, so male, you Mm -hmm. know, and, um, and I started talking to my daughter about it. And I used the story of Amelia, Amelia Earhart. Um, it was a biography by Brad Meltzer. There's a whole series of books on, um, you know, ordinary people who change the world. And Amelia Earhart is one of those books. And we started talking about how in life there will be many people and there will be many times when you're going to doubt yourself or many people who are going to doubt you and who are going to question you, who are going to try to undermine you or make you feel insecure, either because they think you're not capable or because they are they think you are so capable that they are afraid of what you can do. And I said to her, you know, never. I always say to her, and it was almost like telling myself, never let any of those things get to you because, you know, otherwise we just get paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, obviously it was a risk, but... Um, you know, I, I had, I was lucky. I had an advance for the book. It wasn't like I'm not rich by any means, but it allowed me to budget and then pay the bills and have some money to travel because the book required traveling, required, uh, you know, expenditures. So, so in that sense, you know, it's sort of like a long answer, but, but the main message is that, you know, um, there's so much that we can do. Uh, and we're so great at giving, allowing others to achieve their potential. You know, our kids, our husbands, you know, our partners. But we just have to sometimes say, you know what, world, now it's my time. Mm-hmm. I got to do this for me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and others, yes to you. Yeah. And um, I want to pick up on that sort of I, the uh the thing with with self-doubt that comes up, because I know that when, you know, even when you've decided, so you, you know, you decided you committed to writing the book, but there had to have been times where, you know, you just thought, what am I doing? Is this all worth it? Like, what is going on here? And, you know, having to really dig deep and find that resilience. And so how did you deal with that? Um, I cried on my worst moments and I am just one of those people, you know, I cry, I let it out. I cry and then I go, okay, now pull yourself together and do it. Um, there was some of that. Um, it was a very personal, um, project, you know, writing a book is such a lonely thing because you do by yourself. It's your story. It's your space. It's your words, you know, it's your work. Um, and nobody can do it for you. You know, there's no editor that you can kind of write that paragraph and the editor is going to fix it and make it sound better. You know, it's not quite there, but uh, he's going to, he's going to get it better, you know, make it better. Uh, there's no such thing. I mean, it is as good as you want it to be and as good as you can make it. Um, and, uh, you know, also for me as an immigrant whose native language is not English, I moved to this country. Um, I was 25, I'm 42 now. So what is it? 17 years ago. Um, you know, it was, uh, there were a lot of times that those little voices inside my head would say, what did you think that you could write a book in English? You know, um, why did you ever want to write this? Why are you doing this to yourself? It's going to be an embarrassment, you know, and now everybody's going to know you as the horrible writer from the New York times who can't even write a book. I mean, literally like I would tell myself these things inside my head. Um, and, I, I, I listened to this TED talk and it sounds silly, but you know, it was about fear 
Mm-hmm. Um, it was about how people deal with fear. Interestingly, there were four men and one woman, but they each had different jobs. One of them was David Blaine, the magician, and the other one was this astronaut who um, spent a lot of time at the space station, um, and uh, uh, a woman who's a writer, um, and... Um, I forget the other two, but those are the three who mm-hmm. I remember the most. I forget the writer's name. Um, but the point being that what they said really stayed with me. And that was every time that voice tells you something, you have to talk to that voice, especially what the woman said. And I, I'm killing myself, not that I can't remember her name, because she said, what fear is, is an opportunity for you to create a story. Turn your fear into an entryway into a story. I am afraid of writing this book because, and then tell yourself the story and almost talk yourself out of that fear by mm. guiding yourself through that story. And um, and don't ask, don't look at the fear and say, oh my gosh, I can't go there. But ask yourself, why does this scare me so much? You know, and how can I, what can I do so it won't be scary? And, and, and or even if it's scary, how can I turn the fear into a drive? You know, yeah, how yeah. can it be something that actually makes me just want to prove myself wrong almost, you know? Oh, I love um, that. You know, yeah. we're, we'll find, we can find the TED talk. And I will look it, I will look <clears throat> up for you. We'll I, link to it in the show notes. I think I have it on my, has it, I have it on my podcast because okay. that's one of the ones that I saved. Um, and I hear and there, I listen to it because I just find it to be so, um, so powerful, you know? And, uh, and it's not like you conquer fear once and you never fear again. I mean, it's not how it happens. So. No, I mean, that's the thing with all of this is that it's a constant journey, right? We, we sort of tackle these things and we get, we get so far and then we, and, and then it's like a cycle, like then we start again and do it again. And maybe we use different tools or, you know, different things. But Fernanda, I want to ask you, you know, when we put something out into the world like this and we create something that's so personal and it's, it's, it's almost like our baby that we're putting out there, um, we often enter that process as as one person, and then at the other end of the process, we we're changed by that by that process and by that creativity and by producing that thing. Did that happen to you? Are you sort of a different person? Uh, without a question. I mean, there was you know um, one lesson, very strong lesson I learned. I don't, I think I knew it already, but I just had to be reminded of it is the value of teamwork. And, you know, like I said, my husband had to buy into it. My daughter in her own little way, you know, in her own way as a child had to understand why mommy couldn't be there all the time, you know, and, um, um, and I started to think about this notion of teamwork because the Grand Mountain Hotshots, the firefighters I wrote about, they were all about teamwork, firefighting, whatever firefighting crew you work at, you need to, you trust, you have to trust on the people you work with. You have to believe that they can, um, have your back and save your life. If, if that comes, if, if that point comes. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then I became, I began to think about teamwork in the littlest ways that are so significant, but that we often forget to think about like the lady who would come, uh, and clean my office. I had an office at the um, uh, journalism school, the Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State here in Phoenix. And so I would go, you know, with my like a uh, little big jar of cashew nuts and um, my power bars and my coffee cups and there are crumbs everywhere in the middle at the end of the day. And 
you know, just not a very clean office. And I would come back in the morning and the office would be always clean. The floor was clean. The crumbs were gone. The coffee cups were gone. The, the trash can was empty. And one day I, I wanted to find out who that cleaning person was to tell her, you know, I found that it was a woman and I told her, thank you for cleaning my office every day. And she looked at me like, you know, like she was seeing a ghost because she probably nobody ever thought of saying that but mm. I explained to her you know I, I'm so messy but I really appreciate it and um and you know on a, and on another level there was a, a really for me a very deep realization that I can actually do more than I thought I could do you know and when I doubt myself because I still do I sit down to read a write a story for the times and and you know the deadline's approaching and I'm only halfway through the story and I start feeling that tension and I start thinking gosh why did you ever want to do this job you're just not good at it and I remind myself no stop you wrote a book okay (laughs) you can do this (laughs) you know and it's it works. I mean, it's like you almost have to slap yourself in the face and say, you know, you can do this. And and it could be personality, but I'll, I think there's a gender thing. Like women, um, are we tend to be so so sensitive and so caring for people. Not that men are not, but you know, um, we we're like, you know, how are you doing? I'm not okay. Oh, come on, sit here, sit here with me, and tell me what's going on. You know, like we yeah. want to hear about it. And so, um, so you know. Um, Uh, to me, that was sort of like the biggest lesson that Mm. I, that I learned was that I can actually do more than I, than I thought I could do. And when it comes to limits, you know, uh, whenever I see that line, I, I, I I know that I can push and, and go, uh, farther, Mm. you know, I can go beyond the line. Okay. Fernando, we're moving into the segment called superpowers for success. And so I just want to ask you a few quick round questions. Um, What does success in life mean to you? It means waking up every morning and feeling really good about the day that I have ahead. Mm. Means sort of looking at my day at what I have to do and not dreading it. You know, it's, it's not necessarily money. It's not, necessarily recognition it's just being really satisfied at what i what i did the day before and it most importantly what i have to do today you know not don't dwell so much on the past mm. and when did you know deep down within your quiet self when did you know that you're you're really good at what you do oh i don't know sometimes i don't know if i'm really good at what i do um but, you know, there was one thing that one editor once told me. So I, I was working in New York and I covered, um, I had just been trans, moved to the public schools beat, which is a pretty big beat because New York City has the largest public school system in the country, full of problems, etc. And uh, so I left the metro staff, you know, like the city staff. Um, and uh, I get a call from the assignment editor and he said, I know you're doing education, but I really need your help today. And I said, okay, what's up? And he said, you know, there's this the, these three brothers who worked together on a construction site. They were immigrants and um, there was a horrible accident and um, two of them died and one of them survived. And he said, can you please do us try to do a story about them? And he said, you're the only person on staff that I can think of who could actually pull this off. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, you know, really? First of all, no, but, but, he didn't say it as in like he needed to convince me and he was just trying to be nice. You know, he really did mean it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And what I understood at that point was that there was a talent that I had, which was to get people to feel comfortable with me and to talk to me about very personal, sometimes very sad things um, uh, that not everybody else that I worked with had. And so I said, okay, well, if this is the talent that I have and this is what I have going for me, then I should really highlight that and sort of, you know, uh, promote that as a way of promoting myself. it took me also a long time to understand that being an immigrant was actually a huge asset, not a handicap. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I'd known that 10 years ago or 15 years ago, but, you know, better late than ever, I guess. Wow. And what superpower did you discover you had only to realize it was there all the time? <laughs> the ability to do to juggle five things at the same time, 10 things at the same, at the same time, you know, to, to, um, wake up in the morning and have a a, a docket full of things and, um, a full docket and, 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 and being able to accomplish everything and, uh, without, uh, and, and still do them fairly well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have to say that a lot of times I am able to do that because I have, a great husband um, who helps me with my daughter, uh, who's always my priority. So when you know your number one priority is not only yours, but it's also somebody else's, that makes things a lot easier. But when it comes to work and managing the house and, you know, um, doing, I have family in Brazil, remaining close to my family in Brazil, remaining close to my friends and and uh, still being somewhat presentable so I can, you know, go out and interview people and don't look like I, I got out of war at that moment. Um <laughs> You know, those things sound silly, but anyone who's struggled with them understands that Mm. they weigh at you and they kind of take the energy away from doing other things that you actually have to do. Um, And I think that was my superpower, like being a master juggler. And I think I... I was always able to do that. I just didn't believe that I could. Mm. Okay, last question. Um, What advice would you give your younger self, say your 25-year-old self? Um, that you don't have to be like other people, especially if you're, in my case, a writer. I didn't have to write like, I wasted so much of my time trying to write like Dan Barry, trying Mm -hmm. to write like Debbie Zontag, you know, um, who's another reporter at the Times that I really respect and admire. Um, Tried to write like, uh, you know, Susan Orlean. Um, I or Alma Guillermo Prieto. I used to read her books and think, I, oh my gosh, all I want is to one day write like that person. No, um, write like yourself. You know, find your voice and find the way that you write things. And if they're quote unquote simple or if they're quote unquote not sophisticated or if they're quote unquote, uh, you know, not erudite, um, so be it. That's you. That's how you write. And for that reason, there will be a lot of people who will read and, and really love it. And there will be a lot of people who will read and really hate it. But, you know, they're, the people who love you may not love the erudite writer. So accept who you are. Believe that you can do it and stop wasting time trying to be like other people. Nice. I like that. That's a great note to uh, note to end on. Fernanda, I want to thank you so much for being on the program today and for spending this time with us. Oh, thank you for having me. And that's the voice here on the background is my daughter who just came back from camp. Oh, <laughs> mine are going to walk in the door any minute now, too. Well, thank yeah, no, you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. That's it for our show today. I've been speaking with Fernanda Santos, chief of the Phoenix Bureau of the New York Times. 
and the author of The Fire Line, the story of the Granite Mountain hotshots and one of the deadliest days in American fighting. I spoke with Fernanda about her experience writing a book about a topic not often covered by female writers, overcoming insecurities and doubts, and learning to use fear as motivation. You can get a free chapter of Fernanda's book, The Fire Line, at wellwomanlife.com slash 026 show. Our monthly live event, Well Woman Drinks, brings together women to share our successes and challenges as leaders, moms, aunts, sisters, and all the other roles we carry. If you'd like to attend a Well Woman Drinks near you, or if there isn't one in your city yet, and you'd like to start one, email me at info at wellwomanlife.com. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and subscribe in iTunes. And while you're there, leave a review. This helps raise visibility for the show, which is super helpful when it comes to producing the show every week for you. You can also continue the conversation in the Well Woman Life community group at facebook.com groups slash Well Woman Life community. For feedback, comments, or just to let me know you were listening today, find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Well Woman Life. I'm Giovanna Rossi for The Well Woman Show. Until next time, have a super powerful week.